This morning's reading is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Since we believe in a God who is sovereign over all things, this storm is not by chance, and it happens to be just perfect for our sermon today. I'm terrible at sermon illustrations. So he's helping me out today and said, here, you want a little wind, a little rain, a little water rising? We're going to match it right up with, uh, with the passage for today. Um, yeah, that is an answer to prayer. So, so if I lack illustrations, just look out the window today. It'll help you out. Um, these are big. <laughs> They're big. Um, they are beautiful. <laughs> if you guys can't see me, I, you know, just say, put the bush down a little bit. We're ending the series, um, our Lord's teachings in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus ends it with a parable. And, and parables are, they're many narratives, they're, they're storylines that help us understand something greater and something more grand. Um, and so he gives us this parable today. Of, we have two men, and we have two houses, and we have two foundations, and we have one storm, and the results are... Uh, they're dramatically different on how those houses uh, fare. And, and he ends this series of warnings with this most um, dramatic and, and painful. It's interesting. I mean, he ends, he ends the parable with the foolish man's house crashing and not the wise man's house being sustained. Why? He... The entire sermon now is being drawn to a close, and he wants us to not only hear what he has to say, all the teachings that we saw starting back in Matthew chapter 5, and of course we can expound upon that and say all the teachings of sacred scripture. He wants us to hear it, he wants us to understand it, but he said, you have to then do it. He gives us a categorical imperative saying, you must not just know and hear what I'm saying, you must put that into practice. And if you do, you'll be like the wise man, but if you don't, you'll be like the foolish man. And the consequences for such are, they're extreme. And I'm not going to downplay it. I haven't downplayed it. Some of you are bothered by that. Then I, I, the scriptures don't downplay it. There's a reason that Christ is, is bringing this, the full force of this sermon to an end like this. I mean, he's the son of God. He knows how to teach. Um, unfortunately, this, this parable is so well known that it's kind of lost its... You know, the, the phrase, familiarity breeds contempt. Well, certainly, at least here, it's, it's a bred complacency. Um, it, hasn't, it doesn't have the punch it's supposed to have. And so, with a little help from Luke chapter 6, uh, we're going to try to bring the punch back. Um, and so, this morning, we're going to look at just the men in the houses. And I, I, once again, I took a big bite of this. I thought, I, there's no way. We're going to look at the men in the houses today. And then next Sunday, we'll come back and we'll look at the foundations in the storm. Okay, so the men in the houses today, and if you're sitting there saying, you know what, we've been on this, this sermon for a long time. Can, can, can we have, you know, uh, a little bit of Philippians sprinkled in here? Can I have a little, uh, you know, a little uh, First John maybe? I, a little, I want something that's less mm, to it. We could do that. We could. But Jesus Christ wants us to have an assurance of our salvation. That's why he's bringing this teaching, this teaching to a culmination. It is important to him. And it should be important to us that we're not misled. Right? I mean, all those who were sitting listening to him that day on that mountainside heard these teachings and they ended. No one's ever taught like this. We'll look at that too. Might be another week. But he doesn't want them just going away saying, oh, yeah, yeah fantastic, amazing, best teacher I've ever heard. What a rabbi. He wants them to hear it. And then to live in accordance with it, to not be misled, to not think that they're, they're, they've actually entered through the narrow gate and are on that narrow path that leads to life. But when in reality, they've entered through the broad gate. He wants them not to be misled. 
He doesn't want them to be the bad tree bearing bad fruit and in the end end up hearing him say, I never knew you depart from you, worker of iniquity. He doesn't want that, nor should we. The greatest mistake, I mean, the greatest mistake that a person can make is to sit in a church year after year and praise God and sing to God and pray to God and read their Bible and in the end never know him. The greatest mistake can be to come before him on that day and have him cast you out. Greatest mistake. And it's not acceptable to our Lord. And I love that about him. That's not acceptable. He said that's not an acceptable response. He says hear and do, repent and believe. The Bible says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 that God our Savior wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Not acceptable to be misled. In 2 Peter chapter 3 verse 9 we are told that God is patient not wanting anyone to perish but everyone to come to repentance. Not acceptable to be misled by God. He says I'm not going to stand for it. Hear and do. Listen and obey. By God's grace we will this morning do just that. To see this distinction between false converts and true converts. Those who are truly saved and those who think they are saved but they're not. We'll see the distinction this morning. So let's look at this final warning. We're going to look first at the two builders. Specifically their character. And there's a lot about their character revealed through the book of Proverbs. Their character. Number two, the two houses. Essentially the lives they lived. And then number three, the master inspector. How do you pass inspection? So let's look first at the two builders. Their character specifically. In the parable, Jesus highlights their similarities. In fact, he highlights the similarities both of the men and the houses uh, in order to make the, the, the radical distinction of the foundation upon which they are built. Okay, so we have, it's kind of like, you know, those of you who are into the empirical method doing science, he's holding all the other variables in place, right? So he can test one. And so we see immediately these the similarities between these two men and and the reason he's doing that within the confines of the church remember he's talking to those who profess his name right he's talking to those who say they're believers there's a a a wicked subtlety that permeates churches and we all think well we're all on the same team we're all saved we're all going the same direction we're all on the narrow path and christ wants to see us say okay there are similarities but there are also distinct differences And so he highlights the similarities first in order to stress the potential of you or someone else being a goat instead of a sheep. Remember, for those of you who heard uh, Brother Todd's sermon, the, the worst false teachers, the worst false prophets were those who looked like believers and talked like believers and acted like believers, right? They were, they were wolves in sheep's clothing, misleading people. And so Jesus gives us this warning. And some will say, well, you know, what does it matter? When the trial comes, then we'll know. And that's true. But when the trial comes, then it's too late. right? That's why he's giving us the warning ahead of time. He says, there's going to be a testing, and I will test you. And your foundation will be tested. But hear me now before that test date. Hear me now before it's too late. What did they have in common? What did they have in common? Fundamentally, we know they were both building a house. Fundamentally, we know they were both building a house and a home, a place to live, a place to reside, a place to rest, a place to play, a place to grow old. They were establishing a residency, both of them. And it's interesting, most of the commentators said that, and they were very likely in the same neighborhood. I'm like, how did they get that? Well, they said, the storm is going to hit both houses, right? When the storm comes, both houses are going to be hit. So he said, these guys, not only were they both building houses and trying to establish a residency, a place to live, a home, but he said, they, they looked very similar on the outside. I mean, the, these guys, they worked in the same community. Their children played the same soccer teams. They probably attended the same church. Uh, these, these men, these builders, were indistinguishable on the surface. And it's so important that we see that because if you don't see that we can all look alike and talk alike and act alike but have radically different foundations, then we'll miss the point of the parable. He's saying you can't just look and say, well, let's look around this morning. Who's here? These are the believers. Who's not here? Those outside, the non-believers. He's saying that's a false distinction. He says when it comes to what the Bible says, these men, although, or the builders, although they look 
a lot alike are radically different. Their foundations are different. Their hearts are different. The insides are different. In, in Luke chapter 6, we get a detail. That's why you should always read through and do cross-referencing. We get a detail added to the parable that Matthew doesn't give us. Listen, I'm going to read it to you. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, The man who came to me and hears my words and puts them into practice is like a man building a house. So here's the wise man. Now listen. Who dug down deep and laid a foundation on rock. And we know specifically it's bedrock. Something solid. And then he says in verse 49 of Luke 6, But the one who hears my words and does not put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. No foundation. Just start framing. Now, both professing believers, both inside the church, both call Jesus Lord. But one takes a shovel and he digs and pours a foundation on bedrock. The other one just starts building. He said, they look the same. They have the same friends, same family, same community of people. But they are dramatically different in who they are as people. Their characters are distinctly different. How so? Let's look at the foolish builder first. I'm going to invert the order here. And I'll tell you why. This foolish builder is very much... It, it, uh, he he uh, resembles the culture today. And unfortunately, very much the church today. Because his character is such, if we look back at Proverbs... I mean, why not build a foundation? I mean, what you say, well, he didn't know. No, he knew. He knew. He heard the words... He just didn't put them into practice. So why, what compelling reason would anybody have to build a house without a foundation? Why would you do it? Well, there's some proverbs here that give us some of these. First, this man was impatient. He was impatient. Why? If you've ever built anything of any kind, if you can bypass a foundation, I mean, you can immediately start framing a house. In fact, if you have a couple people, you could frame that house, depending upon the size, in a day. And you got a house. And then you can, you can furnish it, and you can cover it, and you can paint it, put a roof on it. And it looks just like the guy next door. And he spent all that time digging. Stupid man. We have both, look at, they're identical. I have a better refrigerator than you too, and a better TV. The first man was impatient. Because he did not see that the foundation, although difficult, and although costly, as we will see, was imperative to the structure. To the structural integrity of the structure. No digging, no forms, no rebar, no concrete, no foundation, no engineering. To build something of quality. And any of you have ever built anything at all. It takes patience. Much patience. Certainly to build a home, it takes patience. It's one of the reasons that it's such a struggle today. If, you, if you've hired someone recently that's in the trades and you see this, this push for time, they come in, they slap it out and they leave and you're like, what did you just do? Why? Well, they're not patient. Why? Because money's driving them, right? They're on a timeline. So first we see that this man's character, the first builder, he's impatient. Secondly, he's lazy and greedy. You say, where do you get that from? Lazy and greedy. Jesus said... That the unwise builder is like the man who hears but does not do. The NIV uses the word practice, which I like. The word in the Greek is poeho, and it literally means, it means work. It's hard work. It's exercise. So do you, understand, do you hear what's going on? The first builder does not want to work as he ought to work. He's lazy. Digging's hard. Have you ever dug? I dug a foundation one time. It is brutal. I dug on a hill. It's costly. Why? It takes time. It takes energy. So there's a cost to it. It's hard and it's costly. But anything worth building in our life, marriage, family, church, ministry, it's hard work. It's costly work. We know this. The second builder was interested in erecting a structure in the least amount of time possible. Just get it up. Just get it done. He was being driven very much like the market economy of efficiency reigning over quality. I mean, why do you think major corporations have quality control? Entire departments in charge of quality control. Why? Because the market says, as fast as you can, as cheap as you can. And get it out. Now, you do that, you produce something as fast as you can and as cheap as you can with no quality control. And what do you have? Most things in your home. Right? I mean, most of the products that we own. They last, what, a year? And you go... Who made this? Why was it so cheap? Well, because those who were making it did not put the labor or the time into it. 
And the shortcuts. This, the first builder wanted to make a shortcut. A third thing I'll give you. He was arrogant. How do you know that? How do I know he was arrogant? The unwise builder hears the teachings of Jesus, his dictates and his commands, and he does what he says. This man hears the instructions and ignores them. I got my own rules. I got my own code. I got my own set of regulations that I'll follow. I don't need someone else's. I certainly don't need his teachings. Now, if you're going to build anything, especially a house, in this particular parable, I mean, that's a serious matter. Building a house would require several things. A soil engineer, an engineer for the project, an architect for the project, a contractor for the project who knows how to do it, someone who actually does the individual particular parts of the building that knows what they're doing. It's a complicated thing. You don't just slap down two-by-fours and build a structure. If you do, there'll be consequences. This man was arrogant. My wife and I, before we bought our house in Scotts Valley, we were going to add on to our home in Boulder Creek. Going to. So we hired a contractor who came highly recommended from a friend. And he came in, and we were going to add on to the back of our wall, and it was on a, on a steep grade. And So this guy... He came in, and everything I asked him to do, he kept saying, oh, no problem. Oh, no problem. Oh, no problem. No problem. Everything was no problem. Six months into the project, and $10,000 later, we called the whole thing off. Why? Lots and lots of problems. This man was not only ignorant, but he was arrogant. And so he kept leading us down this path, and the bottom line is we had to wash our hands of the whole thing. We hired a foolish builder. Now, thankfully, we didn't suffer the consequences of the home being destroyed, but six months and $10,000, needless to say, we were not happy. Last thing, this man was short-sighted. How do I know that? He didn't dig to find bedrock. According to Matthew chapter 7, he built his house on sand. Now, even a two-year-old, after a couple projects on the beach, will come back a week later and go, where's my castle? Well, it's gone. It's gone. You built it on sand. So even the two-year-old gets that. And yet, in our parable, this man builds a structure without a foundation on sand. Why? Because he doesn't have the long-term in sight. He just wants the building now. He wants it to look good now, on the surface. He doesn't ask questions like, what might happen in the future that I should prepare for now? What should I do now that will prevent a storm coming or an earthquake and leveling my house? He wasn't interested in that. He just wanted to got to get it up now. So these character traits, impatience, laziness, greed, arrogance, short-sightedness, these are all character qualities of the foolish builder that led him to build a house without a foundation. All traits that define our cultural moment. I mean, could we not describe our culture, the American Western culture today, as impatient? As lazy, as greedy, as arrogant, and short-sighted. I mean, does that not just describe us? Maybe just me, but us. And yet, they're the exact opposite of the man who builds the house and the foundation. They're diametrically opposed. Look at the wise builder. What do we know about his character? We know that he was not impatient. How do we know that? Because of what he did. In Luke chapter 6, we're told that he digs. Now, and we can assume this. On a sandy area, you're not going to have to clear much. This man probably went out and found a suitable area to build. And then he cleared that area. And then he dug down until he hit bedrock. Who knows how far he had to dig. But that takes patience. And he did that in order to build a house that would stand the test of time. The true believer, saints... The true believer will patiently and persistently build his life on the teaching set forth by Christ. Patiently. You'll be patient with your sanctification. Not satisfied, but patient. Why? Growth is slow. I mean, have you, how many of you planted a garden? You put the seed in, you water it. And if you're like this generation, you come out the next day and go, Where are the plants? You water it day two. It's not there on day three. You bag the whole project. Slow. Patient. Deliberate growth. That means the true believer won't rush to maturation. They won't rush into ministry positions. They won't rush into leadership positions. They won't. They'll be patient. They'll dig deep. And what does that mean? They'll dig deep in the disciplines of the faith. They'll dig deep in scripture. For a long time. How long? Your whole life. They'll dig deep in community and get people around them that know and love Christ. 
They'll dig deep in prayer. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to pray when you're impatient? Uh, all right, I got, I got five minutes. Oh, that's, that's quality prayer. Prayer takes patience. In fact, every single discipline requires great patience given to us by God. The Apostle Paul. Do you know how long it took him before he went on his first missionary journey? Road to Damascus, saving grace, into Jerusalem, out you go. Is that the timeline, according to the book of Acts? Three years. Three years. The Apostle Paul patiently grew in the wisdom and knowledge of Christ. Grew deep in the gospel of grace. He then went to Jerusalem and then was sent out. Three years for the Apostle to the Gentiles growing. Second thing I want you to see from the wise builder is he was not lazy or greedy, but understood that he had to work and it was costly. He got that. To build a life that is honoring to Jesus, it, it takes work. It doesn't take work to be saved. You're saved by God's grace through faith in Christ by His blood and His broken body. He saves you. But the sanctification process... Is something that some of the men in the church we were talking about. It's, called, it, it's what we know as the middle voice, right? Where God comes in, his initiative, his power, his movement, and he expects you to participate in this work. You can't just sit back and, and have him do all the work. He calls you to engage. To engage in the work. To live this life that he's called us to live. And it takes, I mean, it just, it takes energy. I know that as a pastor, one of the things that I'm paid to do, called to do, is to study the scriptures every week. And it's hard. It's hard. Every week to open it and to dig. I get out the shovel and you dig and you dig and you dig. It's wonderful work. It's very rewarding. Many blessings. But it's work. If you've ever spent any time digging in scripture, you know, this is hard stuff. I have to actually work. I have to dig and I have to think to meditate on the word of God. R.C. Sproul, in his book, Knowing Scripture, he put it like this. He says, we fail in our duty to study God's word deeply, not so much because it is difficult to understand, not so much because it is dull or boring, because it is work. He says, our problem is not a lack of intelligence or a lack of passion. Our problem is that we are lazy. Don't you hate that? Don't call me lazy, R.C. But we are. This is hard. It takes action. It takes work and action to actually do what you find out the scriptures call us to do. I mean, repentance and reconciling relationships, that's hard work. Serving others, hard work. Sharing the gospel with the lost, hard work. Maintaining healthy relationships, being a good steward, hard work. It's costly. In this time-consumed economy, it's costly to pray for an hour a day. That'll cost you. It'll cost you something. There's an opportunity cost of some kind. It may be TV. It may be, may be sleeping. It's costly. It's costly to give of your time and your resources to those that you love. It's costly to serve those that you don't like. It's costly to submit your will to God and come under his lordship. It's expensive. But the second builder got it. The builder also, I want you to notice, he is not arrogant. He recognizes his own limitations. How do we know that? He seeks expert counsel. Jesus said in verse 25, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. This guy heard Jesus' teaching and he followed what he said. He said, well, here are the rules and regulations. This is how it works. In my life with you, in my love for you, in my submission to you, this is how I'm supposed to do it. And he did it. Not complicated. Not easy, but not complicated. Christ says, if you really love me, then that will be borne out in how you live your life. The wise builder simply submitted to the great hymn, Trust and Obey, because there's no other way to be happy in Jesus. Trust and obey. Is that complicated? No. He was not arrogant. He was careful to listen to what the Bible says in Exodus 23, 13, to be careful to do what? Everything God has said to do. Everything. That means you don't vacate entire passages or books of the Bible because you don't like it. You study, you meditate, you do the work of knowing his word, and then you do what the word says to hear and understand and practice. That means husbands will love their wives as Jesus loved the church. That means wives will submit to their husbands. It means that children, 
Children, listen, that you will obey your parents and fathers will not exacerbate their children, but instead do what? Bring them up in the training and instruction of the Lord. It's all in the Bible, by the way. Husbands and wives, when you get married, what will you do? You'll be fruitful and multiply and you will not separate until when? Until death do you part. Simple instructions. We'll obey the Bible when it tells us not to have idols. When it tells us not to forsake Christ as our first love. We will, as Proverbs 6 says, bind God's laws upon our hearts forever and fasten them around our necks. When we walk, they will guide us. When we sleep, they will watch over us. When we awake, they will speak to us. For these commands are a lamp, this teaching is a light, and the corrections of discipline are the way of life. We won't be arrogant. We won't discard it. We will take it, and the Word of God will become our, our, our bread every day. The wise builder will not be arrogant but humble and seek after wisdom. Why? Because he knows he's not wise. And he will desire to be wise so that he can make decisions in situations where the rules don't apply. And that happens a lot. So he will hear, as the sage says in Proverbs 4, do not forsake wisdom and she will protect you. Love her and she will watch over you. Wisdom is supreme, therefore get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get wisdom. The wise builder is humble. The wise builder contracts the contractor and the engineer and the architect and the city. And they, and they work together. Lastly, this wise builder, I want you to see, has an understanding of the end. He's not short-sighted. He's forward-thinking. He sees the end. He knows he's got one shot. Did you notice there's only, they're, they're, they're not these builders going up and doing track homes. One home per man. One shot to build it. That means one shot to build it right. He knows that a storm is going to come. It's not if, it's when. So he knows the storm is coming. And so he builds his house in such a way that when the storm comes, when the wind blows, when the rain comes down and the waters rise up, his house will not be like his neighbor's and washed away. He knows there will be a day that he will stand before the Lord and give an account for the life that he has built. And rather than allowing his emotions to sweep him away, he stays the course no matter how hard it is. He keeps the end and the aim in sight. This is the kind of builder that you want. This is the kind of builder that you want to be. So you say, well, you know, I understand the importance of character, but what impact will that have on the building of their home? How important is it? From the example that I gave you in my own life, it's incredibly important. Um, the builder that we hired was the unwise builder. He was arrogant. He was ignorant. He was impatient. Um, he did not have the long-term best interest for us. The character determines the structure. right? The character determines the life. So let's look at the second point. Let's look at the two houses. And the two houses, really simply in the parable, it's the life that you're living. It's your life. You're building your house. Everybody's building. Everybody is. Everybody's constructing a life that will be brought before Jesus Christ on the day of judgment. But before we look at that, look at, the, again, the similarities. Jesus wants you to see the similarities so that you can distinguish the one, the one structural difference. And that is the foundation itself. Throughout the teachings, in fact, throughout this entire chapter 7, he wants us to see, like in the particular case of these houses, their structure was the same, size was the same, appearance was the same, very likely same amenities, landscaping, square footage. So you didn't walk by the homes. You're walking down the street and go, oh, that home, when the storm comes, it's toast. It'll never make it. That home, it'll make it. Well, how do you know? Well, look, this one looks so much better. It's well painted. Beautiful lawn. Great shrubs. Love the blinds. Right? That house will stand the test of time. Christ is painting a picture where these homes look essentially identical on the surface. But they are dramatically different. With the only exception being their foundation. You say, well, okay. I mean, how important is the foundation? Assuming you haven't talked to Katie at all, she's going to tell you. How, how important is the foundation? If you live in California, you know how important a foundation is. Or you better know. If you've come from out of state and you bought a house without looking at the foundation... I want to go recheck your foundation. Why? How many of you were here in the 1989 earthquake? Okay, that was the earthquake 
that changed earthquakes, right? That was the earthquake. When, when I was a kid, earthquakes, it was fantastic. We loved them. Shake it up, you know? We loved them. Parents were like, what's the big deal? You know, it's just a little bit of fun we're having upstairs. And then 89 came. And no one, no one after 89 goes, oh, that's fun. Everybody stops and goes, is it going to keep going? Right? Because you remember that earthquake did not stop and it got stronger. And you're like, this is not fun. Right? And everybody, you know, there was that sudden. <gasps> now, the epicenter, Loma Prieta, right up where I live, I had a chance to, with a, a former teacher, go up to another uh, um, fellow teacher's house. Gone off the foundation. Why? It was a poor foundation. Several homes in the Santa Cruz Mountains utterly destroyed. Foundations were poor. For those of you who were not here but saw the news, you saw pictures of the Marina District in San Francisco. And the Marina District is on fire. And you say, what's, what's going on there? What happened? Do you know, the Marina District in San Francisco, it's landfill. So they have, during an earthquake, they have what's called soil. Katie, you want to finish that for me? What is that? Liquefaction, where it actually... And shakes. And so North Beach is here. Marina is here. They're blocks from each other. Homes in Marina utterly destroyed. Identical homes. North Beach, they were completely intact. Why? Bedrock. North Beach built on bedrock. Marina built on landfill. The earth shook. These were destroyed. These were sustained. So foundation in a house is very, very important. Especially for its structural integrity in the long run. If and when a storm comes. So what are we to glean from these two homes? First, first, that they represent the life that you're building. I mean, the home's your life. Real simple. You're building your structure now. Right now, you have been for your whole life. You will be until Christ comes again or you get to see him in person when he brings you home. You're building your life. That is your house. The structural integrity of your house. And everybody's building, by the way. No one's not building a house. We're all builders. We're just one or the other. And that means everybody is thrust into two categories. I don't like that. I want a third option. There is no third option. There is no door number three. You're either a wise builder or a foolish builder because we're all building a house. And you're either building that life on a foundation that's sound or you're building it like the two-year-old on the sand. And when the storm comes, it'll be swept away. So first, we're all building a house. Second, you've heard the old adage, you cannot judge a book by its cover. Well, applying it to our metaphor, you cannot judge a house by the way it looks. You cannot. I know we do. We do all the time. We do in the church. We judge and we evaluate others based upon how they look and how they talk and how much money they make and how they pray and how much they read their Bible. And we make all these external adjudications. And I'm not saying these things aren't important. I don't want to blow this out of Scripture. The Bible says whether you eat or drink, do all things to the glory of God, external and internal. Romans chapter 14, Paul says anything you do outside of faith is sin. So the external things are important. They are. But underneath the external, underneath what we see, the vital things, the foundational things, if we don't get that right, no matter how good we look outside, they'll be catastrophic and um, cataclysmic ends. If we don't look deeper into ourselves, if we don't look at the foundation upon which we're building our life, our home, underneath the visible, what, what the eye can see, On this Sunday alone, how many people will gather in a church and they'll sing songs to Jesus and they'll pray and they'll hear a sermon, hopefully a good sermon. And then they'll go home and they'll spend six hours playing video games. Or they'll go home and go online and they'll watch porn. How many? How many? How many professing believers will come into a church and sing, Jesus, I love thee. You're my everything. But in their heart of hearts, know when they're singing that, nah, that's not true. I love you, but not that much. I love my job more. I love my marriage more. I love my children more. I love my bank account more. How many houses will look so similar on the outside, virtually identical, but the foundations are dramatically different? And that means when the storm comes, I I can help you paint your house. I painted a lot of homes, and I'll make it look beautiful, but that paint's not going to do you a lick of good if there's a huge storm. If you're living in a house going, oh, I hope the paint works, (laughs) don't fall. You've been misled. 
The cosmetic details will not help withstand the wind and the rain and the floodwaters. I mean, just last night, I mean, it was, in the mount, we live in the mountains. It, the wind picks up. It accelerates up the slope. It's fantastic. But it's blowing at times, and the wind is like, I'm like, ooh, I hope this foundation's good. <laughs> in light of this, I hope it's a good foundation, right? Whole house like, eh. The character of the builder and the foundation that you build your life means everything. It's not just something, it's everything. The character and the foundation for the builder is everything. But what I want you to see, the most important distinction, the reason that Jesus highlights the foundation is because it's everything that's underneath that supports what's on top, if it's real. If it's real. Foundations, I know, for most people... I imagine most homeowners don't even think about it. It's not good, especially in this area. That, that another adage, out of sight, out of mind. I mean, what do you see? The foundations that are around, I don't even see it. So I don't even think about it. Now, anyone who's ever purchased a home in this area, and anyone's ever had a pre-purchase inspection, if you are not looking carefully at, one, the foundation, and two, the soil upon which that foundation is built, you are putting, you're setting yourself up for, in this area... A huge financial loss, right? Now, most homeowners, when they're thinking about buying a home, what are they thinking of? Neighborhood. Come on, you can... Neighborhood, square footage, number of bedrooms, bathrooms, kitchen countertops. What else do you want to add to it? Schools, thank you. Are the blinds included? Because I love the blinds. And they come in, and you do a little pre-purchase inspection. The guy crawls up. He goes, yeah, you got installation. That's good. And he, you know, maybe he'll take off an electrical plate and goes, okay, that, that plate looks okay. The, the wires are done right there. A little bit of plumbing inspection. But the foundation is really the, the most important thing, right? It's the most important thing. It's the first principles that a person begins to build their life on, their life in Christ, that matters most and matter eternally. And we know this. Because God tests and evaluates the foundation. It's the heart, right? We know this. I mean, we can fool ourselves and we can fool others, but we're not going to fool God. God examines. He's the foundation inspector. He looks at your heart. He knows why you think what you think. The foundation from the thought. He knows why you say what you say. He knows the foundation behind your words. He knows why you're doing what you do, the foundation behind your actions. The psalmist said, and we looked at this a couple of weeks back, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? Who will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, a firm foundation. He knows. Saints, he knows. If you've based your life, if you're building your life on your own works or the gospel of grace, he knows this. He knows that he knows that if you're living your life his way or your way, even if you fool people into thinking you're living it his way, he knows. He knows that if you've based your salvation on him or if you are trying to save yourself. And so what Jesus says here, he comes to us and he says, listen, there's a testing that's coming. That storm. We're going to look at this next week in detail. But the storm, the wind, the water rising, the rain, it's the day of judgment. It's the final inspection. It's when the inspector comes out and says, all right, let's see how this house was really built. And I pray to God after the last two weeks you, or three weeks, you don't say, oh, you're going to say, oh, Lord, what a beautiful house. You know what I've done? I prophesied in your name. I've cast out demons in your name. Look at the many mighty things I've done in your name. Look at this house. It's beautiful. And he's going to say, you got a flashlight? <laughs> what do you need a flashlight for? Because I'm going to crawl underneath. I'm going to crawl down, and I'm going to take a look at the foundation of this house. It's very nice on the outside. Love the paint. But I want to look underneath. you got a flashlight. You're going to go... Oh, no, 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 you, you don't need a flashlight. He said, no, no, give me a flashlight. And then Jesus is going to crawl, and he's going to look at the foundation of your life. He's going to examine the depths of your heart to determine whether or not you will stand 
the test. Ignorance for a very short season may be bliss. It may be. But if we don't examine ourselves now, then we may end up like the foolish builder who has a great looking house in a great neighborhood with a great paint job until the storm hits. And as we're being washed away, we'll look back and thinking, why didn't his house go? When that stormy day comes, and it will come. Let's do the last point. The master inspector. How do you examine your house? You say, I don't even like to get dirty. I'm not growing on the crawl space. How do I examine my house? How do you get inside? How do you look? I mean, really look. So that we don't suffer this catastrophe. The end is catastrophic, right? The rain fell, verse 27. The floods came, the winds blew, and beat against the house, and it fell. And then, in the Greek, it's magnified, and we'll look at this more next week. And great was the fall of it. Great was the crash. It wasn't this, it was a great fall. So how do we not end up like that? First, you must recognize, and you must understand that we all look very similar. I mean, this is something we completely dismiss. And I continue to hear it in dialogue with one another. I know someone knows Christ because what? Because they go to church, because they carry a Bible, and they have an ESV study Bible version, which makes it extra good. And because they give, I know, and because all these things that we use, all above ground, external, cosmetic explanations. We all look like that. If that's the case, it's not the few that are going to be saved. It's going to be the many. Because we all look alike, and we talk alike, and we act alike. We all, not only, we want the same things. We desire the same things. How many people have you ever churched with that say, you know what? Hell sounds much better. Nobody. Everybody in the church desires to go to heaven. Everybody that I've ever met desires peace. Everybody I've ever met in the church desires joy. Everybody in the church that I've met not only desires peace and joy in heaven, but they think they have and they're going to get them. Even last week, those who prophesied in his name and cast out demons in his name and did many mighty works, they believed they were forgiven. They believed they had salvation. They believed the power they were exercising was actually from God. They enjoyed all the comforts of religion. And Christ said, I do not know you. Their foundation was fundamentally flawed. Their heart was wrong. I mean, after these several sermons, we must know now that you can be a counterfeit believer. Have you heard that term before, using the church? Counterfeit. You can have a counterfeit sense of safety, not real. A counterfeit sense of peace, not real. Even a counterfeit sense of joy, but not the joy of God. If you haven't contemplated your sin in a long time, might it be because you're not truly saved? If you haven't contemplated these very serious warnings in a long time, I haven't thought about this stuff in years, might it be because your foundation's off? That it's not really in Christ? Might that be the case? I pray not. But might that not be the case? At least it reveals there's something dramatically wrong in our sense of security and peace and joy. If we're not even examining ourselves, something's off. You can have a false sense of peace and comfort and power. I mean... Not to go into this too long or too deep, but the devil and his dominions give a remarkable uh, disguise, don't they? They give lots of guidance, by the way. They're actively guiding people today, many in the church. I know of a said believer who actually went to a medium not too long ago. A medium to have God speak to her through a demonically influenced woman. The demonic forces can and do counterfeit almost every aspect of the Christian life. To a T. But it's counterfeit. It's not real. It won't stand the test of time. I mean, certainly during this time of year, we see much counterfeiting, right? Much counterfeiting. How many people will flood the church on a Christmas Eve day and not know Christ as Lord and Savior, but they love baby Jesus? 
Well, why not? It's a baby. Right? When he comes back, he's not going to be a baby. We judge ourselves more often than not based upon all the external things. The paint, the square footage, and the number of bathrooms. Worse yet, we judge ourselves based upon the other houses we see. I got better paint, I got more houses, I got more bedrooms, I got more square footage. And those are fundamentally wrong. Christ is saying here, look, you got to see, we're all going to look very similar. But you got to know what's underneath to know if you really know me. So the first thing, in order to examine yourself, you must know that you can't just use a relative perspective of other people, that we're all going to look very similar. Second thing, we must ask God. Here's the hardest prayer that you can pray. You must ask God, the master inspector, to come in, grab a flashlight, get in the crawl space, and look at your foundation. To look. And that's a prayer that you can't just pray flippantly. I mean, you may, in which case you're really locking your doors and not letting them in. I'm talking about a prayer like David in Psalm 26 when he says, Test me, O Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. Come in and take a good, hard, long look. Because I really want to know. That's a brutal prayer. Or maybe the psalmist in Psalm 139 who said, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See, Lord, if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way of everlasting. Test me. You want to pray boldly? Pray that prayer. Test me, Father. That means that you are asking God to come in and examine your character as a person. Am I impatient? Am I lazy? Am I greedy? Am I arrogant? When I look at your holy word and I examine myself, how do I fare, God? Am I like the foolish man who will build my house on the sand and see utter destruction? Or am I like the wise man who sees my utter incompetence and falls on the mercy and grace and power of Christ? You'll ask him to come in and examine your character. And you'll ask him to come in and you'll have him examine your life, the the structure. And he's going to go in. He's going to look. He's going to look at the whole life on top and underneath. And he's going to get a composite picture of you. And you're going to ask him this. And a question that you have to say is, well, are we more concerned about the external display? Or do we care about the invisible things? The deep things? Only the thoughts that God knows about. Only the things that God sees you doing. These are foundational matters. These are matters of the heart. Only your real hopes and your real dreams and your real love. Those are the things that he sees. What they really are. Because most of you were singing. You were singing. And it was either you were singing really praising God because it was true what you were saying... Or it was all counterfeit. And God knows. You're not going to say, didn't you hear me sing? He said, yeah, I heard you sing, but you weren't serious. We'll ask him to come in and examine our hearts to see whether or not we are truly poor in spirit. He'll pull up his his own sermon and ask ourselves, do we really mourn our spiritual poverty? He will ask us and look to see whether or not we are truly meek. Whether we truly hunger and thirst for righteousness. Are we really merciful or do we just act merciful? He'll come in and examine whether or not we truly long for a pure heart to be a peacemaker. Do we continuously murder our brothers and sisters? Do we devour members of the opposite sex? Committing adultery in our minds. Do we love our enemies? Do we pray for those who persecute us? Do we guard our hearts and minds when we pray and fast and give to the poor? lest we deceive ourselves? Do we serve two masters, God and money? Are we filled with anxiety and worry, or do we find our security and peace in God alone? This prayer is a prayer to say, God, come in using your word and look at my foundation and look at my house and look at my life and speak the truth to me. Why? Why would anyone want that? So that in the end, your house is not destroyed. 
so in the end it won't be utter destruction. How often we must do this? Daily. You say, can I just get one inspection? Sign it off. House is free and clear. Right? Your house gets red-tagged. You got to fix whatever was red-tagged. You get it fixed. Inspector comes out, signs it off. House is good. It's not how it works in the spiritual realm. This prayer to ask God to come in and examine your foundation is a daily examination. How long does it take us to get off the foundation? About a minute. Oh, no, a second. Oh, maybe a nanosecond. How long? Like that. So we must recognize that we are similar, and therefore we must ask God to come in. And lastly, we must become expert builders by building our lives on the person and work of Jesus Christ. You see, I I can't swing a hammer. I can't build anything. If you know Christ, you can build your life. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, profound verse, listen. The Apostle Paul says, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as an expert builder. And then he says, each one should be careful how he builds. Meaning what? Each one of us should be careful how we make our life, how we build our life, how we live our life. The house that we build. He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. In other words, is your character... And is the life that you're building built upon the work and person of Jesus Christ or on your own work and your own personhood? Which one? God knows, he knows that when sin came into the world, our characters were terminally flawed and our buildings were utterly ruined. He knows that. He knew that. That the human race entered into a categorically and fundamentally position of being unable to be people of character and live a life that's holy. Can't do it. And so what Jesus did is he came in, for those of you who know him, and he got into your crawl space. (laughs) And he said to you, this foundation is flawed completely. He said, Lord, what does that mean? You need a whole new foundation. What does that mean? I got to demo the house. What? Yeah. We got to demo the house. We got to remove the old foundation. And we got to dig deep down the bedrock. So that when the storm comes and it will come, you will not crash. And for those of you who have ears to hear, you heard that. And he came in. And he revealed your total and utter depravity. It's why he came in the flesh. He said, well, he came in the flesh to redeem mankind. Redeem us from what? From sin and death. Redeem us from characters that were utterly flawed. Redeem us from lives that were not holy. He came in the flesh as a man to overcome the curse of sin and death by being what? By being a man of perfect moral character. One of my boys asked me last week, so, so Jesus, in being perfect, you know, he never stumbled, he never fell, he never, you know, struck out playing baseball? Perfect moral character. He was fully human. Of course he struck out playing baseball. Curveballs are hard to hit. Perfect moral character. He came in the flesh and he lived that perfect moral life. He was perfectly patient. He was hardworking. He was sacrificial. He was humble in heart. And he always had the end in sight. I mean, he's the builder. He's the perfect builder. He's the guy you want to hire. He came in the flesh to build the house that we could not build. You've heard me say this innumerable times. He came to live the life that you could not and would not live. He lived it in your place. And then, through his life, death, and resurrection, he went to the cross. He overcame the power of sin and death. And in the most remarkable act of radical love, he takes his perfect life, he takes his perfect character, and he says, here... It's yours. You say, I don't deserve this. He says, of course not. You have my perfect character. And you say, I don't deserve to live in this house. He says, of course not. It's yours freely through the cross for all who repent and believe. 
You say, well, I can't earn this. He said, of course not. You could never earn this. His character in his life. And that means, saints, that in the eyes of God, when God looks at you, he sees the perfect character of his son. (laughs) I don't know about you, but that's great news. Because my character is radically and fundamentally flawed. But when I come before God the Father, he sees the character of his son perfect. And when he looks at my life with all the sin and all the failures and all the misery and all the things that I've done wrong and all the things that I should have done that I did not do, he sees the perfect house of Christ, the perfect life of Christ. And he has given that to me too. And then, if that weren't good enough, and that's good enough, he sends us the Holy Spirit and empowers us right now to live the character that we've always been give, always already been given and the life that's already been lived. Does that make sense? The Holy Spirit, the power to live in accordance with the character that we already have in Christ and to live the life, build the house that's already been built by Christ. Right now. That means you cannot ramble through life claiming Christ, going to church, reading your Bible, and thinking you know Him. You can't be unconcerned about your character as a person. Character matters eternally. You cannot be unconcerned about the life you're living, the house you're building. It matters eternally. If you are, I mean, if you're just crashing through this life, hearing a little bit, doing a little bit, not doing most, not terribly concerned about your character because grace covers it all, not terribly concerned about the house you're building because in the end we'll all stand, then listen to Jesus. He said, only those who hear my words and do them will survive the storm. Only those. The day of judgment and enter my rest. If you are a foolish man who builds your house on the sand, the rain will fall, the floods will come, the wind will blow, it will beat against your house, and it will fall, and that crash will be great. The compelling question for us this morning is this. How will you build your house? How are you building your house? What's your foundation? Is it on the sand, or is it on Christ? The word of God, we will see next week, provides that foundation to live the life that we've been called to live. Saints, these warnings I know are severe. I know they're hard. They certainly have been hard on me in both my studies and the teaching and preaching of it. But they were given to us by Christ to warn us. To warn us. Many of us woke up this morning to a storm. Nothing compared to the storm to come. This is mild. This is meek. The storm that will come on that day of judgment will tear you to pieces if your house, if your life, if your character has not been built upon the rock of Christ. You'll be torn to pieces. That's guaranteed. It doesn't matter how long you've been in church, how many times you've read through your Bible. It doesn't matter if you're a preacher or a deacon or a ministry leader. If your house is not built upon the rock of Christ, you will be destroyed. Christ is teaching that plainly. And so by God's grace, you and I will not be one of the many who are misled, but we will hear and do what Christ has called us to do and be. Let's pray. Father, for the past few weeks now, we've been examining these warnings in great detail. And they are hard to hear. They're hard because our flesh fights against this truth. That only a few enter through the narrow gate and will find life. We fight it. I pray in light of this parable that you would reveal to us clearly and that we would keep this with us, Lord, that we can't look at the life that we're living based upon what we see. It can't just be 
our church attendance or our ministry life or how much we read scripture or pray. It can't just be how much we give. It can't be based upon how we look at others and think that we're better or worse. I pray, Lord, that you would show us that there are great similarities of both the saved and the unsaved, of the true believer and the false convert. And that in light of that truth, I pray that we'd be faithful to examine ourselves deeply. That we would ask you to get into our crawl space and that we would go down there with you and we would look deeply at the foundational principles, the fundamental foundation of our life. Is it you? Is it the cross? Is it the gospel? Those are yes or no answers, Father. Make it clear to us. And that by your grace and mercy, enable us to come out from that crawl space and live this life of holy character to build this house that will stand the storm to come. For it is coming, Lord. And if your scripture speaks the truth, it is near. I pray by your grace and mercy that you would enable us to withstand it. In Christ's holy name.